Welcome to the Winged Hazar Pubcast. From fantasy to sci-fi to history and horror, your hosts are about to take you on a journey through all things Winged Hazar Publishing. Sit back and relax as we talk about writing, gaming, as well as interview some of your favorite authors. Let's wing it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Winged Husser Pubcast. I'm Brandon. I'm Sideshow Mark. I'm Ben. And we are back on part two of our interview episode with Ben. Part one, we had a lot of really good discussion, a lot of good uh, building up the dwarves and what's going on to the novel. But we're going to get into li- and it was a deep dive. It was a really deep dive and some really awesome questions and answers. But we're going to dig into a little bit more of the spoilery stuff in this episode. So I will warn you when we're getting into that. But um, going to finish up with my questions from the first episode and then we'll dig into that. All right, so Ben, you've had some really good questions about the novel, but I want to, because we're working in a franchise setting, I want to ask you some of the questions that, you know, we've answered before, but I want, for the sake of our audience, I want to ask you here about working with Mantic, because this is set in their universe, and, you know, you don't necessarily have free roam of the universe you're writing, and you have to play by sandbox rules. You have to make sure that you're keeping within their realm of what they want. So... You know, this novel is kind of one of our, it's not our first, but it's one of the big plot progression novels that we've had. You know, we've done, this is going to be the third. The first one was Rise of the Celestians, which set up the backstory of the Kings of War universe and kind of actually uh, touched on what you were talking about, about how each faction is has a level playing field. And that's actually thanks to the Celestians. So if you want to learn more about that, make sure you check that novel out. Uh, the second one was Broken Alliance. That was another Mantic pitch novel where they wanted to move the story of the Halflings and the League of Rordia forward. And for those that don't know, League of Rordia was kind of like, um, it was a human and Halfling faction that existed in the world of Mantic, but they didn't really do a lot with it. It was kind of just like a secondary army that there were rules for, but there were no minis. And then Mantic came out with the Halfling army miniatures, and they decided, they asked us if we could do a novel to tie in with that. And so Scott Washburn, the author of that one, um, worked with Mantic to make sure that the novel coexisted and tied in with the characters, the rules, and the minis, and everything. And so that was the second big Mantic novel that we did. All the other novels up to this point have kind of been just authors have pitched ideas, we've approved them, and then they've kind of told a story within the universe, making sure to adhere to the rules. Now this one, Pride of a King, as we talked about in the first episode, this was kind of Mantic's idea, more or less, to say, hey, this is kind of what we want to see. And then, Ben, you kind of ran with your idea from there. What was your relationship like working with Mantic and, you know, going back and forth with them? And how does it feel to have to write a novel with such big ramifications on the actual plot of the Kings of War universe? Yeah, well, so I'll start off with kind of like how it's like to work with Mantic. I, it's interesting working with them. They're the only company that I've ever worked with as far as writing novels and such. I've worked with other companies on other things, but never in regards to their specifically their lore or anything along those lines. Uh, Mark's told me horror stories of other companies, um, so I count my blessings that Inmantic is usually pretty good at working with me and listening to my ideas. They don't always agree with those ideas, but they do respond, and there is a dialogue between us. Um, they're also a really small company that is doing things that would make bigger companies envious. So they've got a lot on their plate and they don't have a huge team to handle it all. 
Um, so that has its good and bad parts that come with that. That being said, I do love that they are utilizing novels to shape their lore because I, I will say this, I always hated reading black library books from GW and how they were almost always different from the lore and the rule books in, uh, on, on significant details in some cases, um, as if the story was different in the novels than it was for the game. And it made me feel like it was a bit futile to read the books because they never matched up or, and this would happen more frequently than was, you know, useful. The game would quickly retcon anything that the novels did. And it largely became pointless to read the novels unless you enjoyed the fiction, which that's as good a reason as any to read a book. But I'm just saying if you were reading it from a lore perspective, it felt frustrating that you would invest this time into these characters and then it would change within the game. Plus, and here's a kicker, and here's an important thing to keep in mind for the upcoming books, is that you always knew that certain characters would survive because named characters in the game were essentially immortal. And this is not the case with Mantic. So keep that in mind. Yeah, we've been told we have free reign to, you know, kill characters as as we see fit. I'm not saying who, went, who, what, when, or where, but that is something different. And, it, you know, we this is not to the extent as, let's say, um, when we were working with Wild West Exodus, nobody was safe. Absolutely nobody. But here, it's kind of like, use them as pawns, more or less. You know, you have these characters, use them as you want, kill them as you need. Exactly. And that's... It's not going to be straight-up Game of Thrones, I will say that. We are not going to have any red weddings or anything along those lines that people need to oh, be... Oh, God. <laughs> there, will be, there will be no rage quitting based on that, but <laughs> not nobody's really 100% safe. So there is that sense of urgency within the narrative because you don't know. And here's the nice thing is that Mantic, for the most part, has not directly spoiled any of those revelations they have not stated any of these things so as you're reading this novel keep in mind that there things might happen that you aren't expecting um i am a firm believer that if a character you know that they're going to make it out it robs any kind of tension from the scene and i always hated that about certain stories like uh, like for example supernatural i watched most of the seasons of that but by the end i was like yes we know they're gonna die and hey good luck they're gonna be back maybe two to three episodes they might even have a half season arc on how they got one of them back but by the end of the season everything's gonna be tied up and the two brothers are gonna be back and it just made it so i was like yeah it's scary but is it is it not really so that is something that's important to keep in mind as you are reading these books, is that nobody is safe. And that's a fair point. It's something, you know, I've mentioned, I'm not a huge fan of using death as a vehicle, but it, it you'd look at, and we've talked about this, I think, on the first or second episode, you look at characters like Jean Grey who are constantly dying and coming back, dying, coming back. It, it robs any type of um, emotions out of it. But if you use it for a specific reason, you know, it, it's got its value, and I can appreciate that. Um, so, speaking of working with Mantic, what were you were you were you told specifically not to do certain things, or did they tell did they give you direction of what the dwarves 
were not like or what they were like. And I bring this up because we talked about, in the, I think it was the last episode, that when we first started doing these novels, a lot of submissions were for the brother mark. Not the, when it was actually called The Brotherhood, and Mantic said right off the bat, nope, we're not doing any Brotherhood novels, and I had to nix a whole bunch of submissions. So what what were your like ramifications of what you were and weren't allowed to do, or what you were told the dwarves were and weren't like? One thing that was helpful is that I'd already written Drowned Secrets, it had already been approved, I'd already worked with Mantic, and so I'd kind of earned that, I don't want to say approval, but that, that, rep- that, that repertoire between us that i was i was willing to work you're with them. capable that and that i was capable yeah that's a good way of putting yeah. it yeah and so as a result um there there were there was that level of trust going into this on top but as i came in there were some stipulations such as one thing that they really wanted to make sure was not happening is that the dwarves were not allowed to be scottish um, that was a big one. They Interesting. Were, they are not allowed to be Scottish because that's the caricature, you know, every dwarf is a Scotsman kind of thing. And it was like, it's, we don't want that. That was a good accent. Well, thank um, you. <laughs> that, that was, you should be proud of that. That was good. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but uh, in regards to that, they're like, no, dwarves are, are Welsh-based. And so I had to do a lot of research into Welsh storytelling conventions Um one of the things I do is I have a lot of poems and songs that I insert into this because I'm a, I'm a literature nut. I've studied English literature for well over half my life now um, and in great detail. So I love that. I I know that for a culture to exist, it needs to have songs. It needs to have poetry. It needs to have theater and plays and 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 things that help embody the values that they have. And so I looked at Welsh tradition and I realized that they're not as morose as the Irish and, and some of the other um, cultures that dwarves have been based on, especially the pseudo Scottish Viking vibe that they have in a lot of, in a lot of worlds. And so I tried to embody that and put, and while the dwarves in this situation, this is a very heavy subject matter kind of book. And as a result, they aren't going to be singing happy songs all the time, but I do try to include the same kind of meter and rhyme as certain traditional Welsh, um, stories. I even looked up a, types of poetry that were common and i created a song entirely about uh, just to insert for cultural reference within there that was based off the same rhyme scheme the same rhyme meter um same kind of couplets and everything along those lines because i felt like that was an important thing to do and so i had to do that uh for my own personal needs on top of that but beyond that actually the dwarf culture and the dwarf lore was surprisingly underdeveloped by the time that I was given reign to go into this. And Mike Rossi actually got the green light for his dwarf novel um, at around the same time. Um, and so he and I worked together almost concurrently on our novels um, as as we were going through this. And we worked together to establish a lot of dwarf culture. Um, and we came up with just files upon files of different nuanced aspects of the culture Um, i could write an entire essay on dwarven agriculture that we came up with and how they're able to keep that going um but a lot of and we had to run yeah we had to run all of this stuff 
through Mantic to be like, hey, this is what we were thinking of. This is how this could work. Um, and I would say a good 85 to 90% of what we proposed, Mantic was like, that sounds great. Go for it. Uh, there were a few changes, uh, like some of the nuanced stuff. Most of the nuanced stuff that we have never made it into the novel because outside of a few specific niche individuals, that would have been boring. There was one detail right. that came up that we thought was really cool, which was on the um, ventilation systems for the Dwarven Keeps um, and how that would work and how they need these giant turbines to pump air into these underground tunnels because they essentially live in mines and there's no way to get air in there. And if dwarves are able to exist on the surface without oxygen and without any kind of like dirt gills or something along those lines that help them <laughs> get their oxygen, there has to be a way to do that. And the reason that worked its way into the story is because it becomes a key plot point later on in the story. I really wish I could have been a fly on the wall in Mantic HQ when you sent that email through. With, <laughs> yeah, just, just to see uh, you know, Matt Gilbert with, uh, Stoddard's been in touch. He sent me 20 pages on a five-field rotation system for dwarf <laughs> agriculture. I really wish I could have seen it. Um, but I, I do think it is, it's hugely important, that side of it. It's the, it's the tip of the iceberg thing, isn't it? That uh, any yeah. novel, an author's going to prioritise something, some aspect which they think is going to drive the story forward the most. Uh, from, from your material I've read, it's always uh, leapt out to me, the world building side of it. And now that you've explained kind of your, your academic uh, credibility behind that, that makes so much more sense because I, I can't do that. I, I wouldn't even know where to start. And everyone digs in, in, in their own way. And I think it's it's great that you have put in all of that effort. And even if only 10% of it gets gets used, it's still worth it because if you do have to dig deeper, it's all there. Um, and you right. can tell, we, we spoke about this on an episode beforehand about a, a fantasy sci-fi world when they don't feel lived in because they're not developed. It's, it's kind of almost like playing a video game and it being a sandbox thing, and you're in a city, mm-hmm. but there's only five or six people wandering around because it's underdeveloped, and it just doesn't feel yeah, right. right. And this, when, when you do put in that effort to stuff that, well, agriculture, does it matter in a war game? Yeah, it does, because you're trying to make the culture feel immersive and believable, and, uh, and that's what you need, stuff like that. No, I appreciate that. Yeah. One of the things that we ran aground of was um, going off of that point was we developed this long system for the clans and how they worked and how it was different with the free dwarves versus the imperial dwarves. And we developed something called a clansvelt between Mike and I because that was going to be an important part of my novel. And it was a, a differentiation between major clans who were these older clans that were that had this great renown and all that kind of stuff in these minor clans that existed and should still have a voice in their government. But how, how is that represented, especially for the Imperial dwarves where there's a King? So what role do the clans actually play in it? And so we bounced back and forth several various systems of government. And we actually started basing it a lot off of Roman government specifically that of like caesar right of him coming into power and how that worked with like the senate um and we kind of compared clans to the senate a little bit and how that kind of works um but with golok where he's kind of he's very he's a very almost to the point of being tyrannical almost 
is a very strong-fisted ruler. And as such, what what input do, does the Senate have with someone like Caesar who has control over everything and, and does it? Whereas with the Free Dwarves, it's much more of a republic where the clans are all independent bodies that work together um, and, and, and such. And so we had that and Mantic had a few qualms about that one and they came back and they're like, well, we're not sure about this. Um, we were able to convince him to come around on like the Klansvelt. Uh, we had to change some things with that about like its frequency, how often it came up. Because at the Klansvelt, the major and minor clans meet, and the king doesn't have a presence other than as a formality at the Klansvelt. And they sit there and they discuss the behaviors of the clan and who deserves to be considered major and who deserves to be considered minor. Um, and what kind of role they will have in dwarven society, and that's what the Klansvelt is based around. And and minor clans can submit themselves for um, examination to see if they warrant that that advancement. And so that was something that we came up with, um, and and we had to talk back and forth with Mantic and get that worked out. Um, but it, it it turned out well, and it works into the story of Pride of a King and is an important part of the story. Um, Another thing that we ran into was the stone priests. Now, I based a lot of this on my own personal experience because I grow, grew up and still live in a highly religious community. Like it is, religion is a cornerstone of where, where I live. Now, um, I myself am religious, not that that matters entirely, but it does affect my, the lens through which I see things. But I've also seen the good and the bad of a society that's based on a deeply religious society. And I decided to base a little bit of the dwarves off of that um, because their priests are such an important part of their lore and their gods are such an important part of their lore. And the dwarves are different from the other races because they are the only race that besides uh, the Varanger who still worship one of the primogenitor gods of Dianek. And Dianek is kind of one of, it seems like the only good guy of the primogenitor gods especially after reading rise of the celestians she's like a mother to them um and so i based this whole religion around them um i came up with formal titles for them and referring back to how like deep diving into other um religions i or deep diving into other cultures i researched some celtic and welsh mythologies of certain things and i adapted some of those one story in particular into a legend that um, often tells uh, Bannock in a scene to kind of as the icebreaker between them and it's, a, it's a, to teach a lesson because he's a priest and that's what he does is he teaches sermons and all that kind of stuff and so working that in there was fun because it's based off of a Celtic mythology but with a dwarven twist on it that fits really well within dwarven belief systems um, we had, we, we had a little bit of back and forth with, um, Mantic about how the religion worked with them. One of the things that we had to change was we came up with the term diacon for, or diacon, I can't remember how it's pronounced for, um, f to refer to stone priests because it just felt weird always being like stone priest, stone priest, stone priest. So I figured, well, the dwarves have a culture and just like we have different names for our religious leaders, bishop, priest, rabbi, whatever the case may be, 
they would have different titles for them. And so I was like, well, let's call them diacons. And they came back and said, well, we don't really like the name of that. It meant deacon in Welsh. And they were like, well, let's try. How about? And so I pitched a couple others and they finally settled on athro, which means teacher. So still works. Um, You know, that's really interesting. And something I didn't pick up on on the edits. It's clearer now that you're explaining it to me. But when working in these universes, sometimes the hardest part is making sure Spelling the terms doesn't feel like you're reading a battle report. Um, you know, it's just using that as an example, you know, in a if somebody, a first time writer might just use Stone Priest over and over and over again. And I don't think I would necessarily look two ways about it because we're utilizing the, te- the terminology that we're being given. But you took that a step further and said, well, if we're writing a novel based on the universe and we want to flesh out the lore of the universe, they should have terminology that they're using for their specific groups like we have so that's actually i I give you kudos on that because i didn't pick up on that in the first read and that's another really really big lore detail that i think helps to to flesh out the books in a universe while still maintaining the source material yeah we did we did a couple of things like that i also came up with a a swear phrase because i it felt it felt irritating that some swearing or some cursing didn't it it sounded like they were you know guys sitting around the back porch talking to each other rather than you know a fantasy setting so i was like well let's come up with one that's like a stronger variation of like damn it and it was uh ufran was one and they 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 say that periodically throughout the thing and it's just little tidbits like that because language is such an important thing i'm also a linguist uh i speak spanish and english and so i have that comparison i've learned a little bit of japanese to kind of give something that's not a romantic language and so i've got these comparisons that i do for it and i think that's an important part of culture is language and how things are expressed so Definitely agree with you there. That's one of the things I'm always trying to push authors on, especially in science fiction settings. I'm like, there has to be, you know, it, slang and cursing is always something. To, I always look at um, Dan Abnett, for example, where he used Feth. Feth was always like his go-to curse in Gaunt's Ghosts. And, you know, if a kid's reading that novel, they can say Feth and it doesn't mean anything. I mean, it's, it's a, it's, you can kind of use contact clues to tell what it actually means. But if kids walking around going, Feth, he's not offending anybody. But if a kid's walking around and using the F word and the S word, it's like, oh, oh hold on, hold on. You're using language you really shouldn't be using. So it, it's the same context here. You, you want to make these books, um, appropriate for all audiences and give the factions that you're writing about, the races that, and species that you're writing about more depth. So create your own language. And you don't have to go like you don't have to go completely. They're not speaking English. Just create little words that you see it in, like you did, and it makes it feel so much more lived in and fleshed out. Yeah, no, I agree. I um, and and I, I extend that even to like if you go back and look at Drowned Secrets, the way in which Magdalene speaks and the way that which the the naiads speak is meant to. I took kind of like a Spanish twist on it and I rearranged the syntax and I made it so that they wouldn't fit because I feel like that's an important detail that's missing from a lot of, especially um, IP fiction kind of thing is that people don't take it that extra step and add that layer to their, to the world to give it that, that lived in feel, right? Because in reality, languages have different ways of expressing and accents are expressed in different ways other than lilting tones kind of thing. Let's slide into a quick break, and then we'll come back and talk about some more 
spoiler-esque aspects of the novel. And today's episode is sponsored by On Military Matters, your source for new, used, and out-of-print books on military history, wargaming, and modeling. Check them out at onmilitarymatters.com and make sure to sign up for the weekly e-flyer. Alright, so this is going to be a first of Winged Husser kind, I'm going to say, because we've never really done a spoilery deep dive on any of the uh, shows we've gone on. And I don't want to go too, too deep, but there's a lot of things I do want to touch on, just because it, we have this platform to do it. One of the things I've brought up on multiple episodes, and just anytime I'm talking about lore building, there's a lot that we've talked about in this episode that you know people can look at in the future, but the game that you had Bannock and um, a shawl? No. No. What's it? Uh, Grumman. Grumman Ashtel. Grumman. That's it. The game you had Bannock and Grumman playing in the dungeon is just, it's such a little minor detail, but it's its an official now game in the Kings of War universe that I just, i when I read it, I was just like, this is so cool. He made, he made a game and now it's a lore detail. Like, this is the things that people should be looking for when they're talking about like what the lore is it's not a big overwhelming like oh here's this thing but it's just such a minor detail that was used to further a plot point and now it's an official canon thing that i think was really cool it's how do you pronounce it It, kiswilt it's pronounced uh kisult so like kesult kind of thing is kind of how at least that's the the google translates because unfortunately i don't actually speak welsh i'm trying to pick it up (laughs) Uh, trying to pick up different aspects of it and trying to get like the accent down and all that kind of stuff because I think that's important. But yeah, it's Kasult is how it was pronounced. I was going to say, I, I wanted to, like that was supposed to be a springboard to talk about some bigger like details that you see it in and like fleshing out, but yeah. we kind of hit it out of the park with the first half of it. So that's just, I wanted to bring that up. I wanted to make sure we talked about it because I've talked about it on almost every other episode we've done just to, the, as an example of lore building and world fleshing. That's awesome. Yeah, I, if you want, I can talk a little bit about it. Just, I, I, I knew that players were, this is for a wargaming demographic, so why not put a kind of wargame in there? On top of that, chess in one form or another, it's one of the constants throughout all cultures that have ever existed. A form of a chess-like game has been invented by every society that has ever existed that we have records of. Doesn't matter which one. Um, and so it would make sense that the dwarves would have that. And our player base that reads these books would understand the idea of a peace trading game because that's what Kings of War is. Um, and so we humans love our games. Dwarves also love those kind of things. And so why not use that? And you, you say it perfectly. It's a plot point because it's a way of me recapping and explaining the, the antagonist's plot or plan without him twirling his mustache and cackling the whole time um and it's a way that we can do it in a way that sounds like he's gloating but it's not an in your face and it doesn't sound patronizing to the reader or lecturing them on this is what's happening this is why i'm so brilliant kind of thing um let's talk about the characters then um (laughs) previous episode then uh we've spoken about and it's a bit of a gross oversimplification sometimes about dividing stories into plot character and theme and that sort of thing uh and Mm -hmm. different authors will um if if you were to take a the venn diagram of your story will split it up 
and, and will prioritise different areas over others. But the characters in this were all really engaging, but they weren't, to start with at least, yours, which must have been a bit of a weird, um, a weird thing to do. Of these characters, which were the most fun to write and which ones were the most tricky, do you think? The funnest and the one that I connected with the most was Bannock, um, just because I, I read his backstory in the lore, I saw what he what his backstory was, and that honestly, uh, he has a lot of trauma that he's carrying around. You have to, if you're going to literally exile yourself from society, something bad has to have happened to you. Um, I also saw him as an outlier of society, which I relate to fairly well because, you know, I'm... I think we've all experienced that moments where we we feel like we're sitting on the fringe of the society of which we're part, and we don't quite mesh well. I, I love I love Terry Pratchett. He's one of my favorite authors of all time. I wrote part of my master's thesis on on his book, The We Free Men, and there's a quote in there that I just love. There's two quotes that I think apply here. One of them is, you know, he's like, um, where. Tiffany, the main character, is this standoffish little girl, and she's talking to another person who's this kind of wise older woman, and she's and you know she's got her Scottish brogue and all that kind of stuff that she talks to her, and she's like, "You've got that wee little bitty bit inside of you that that doesn't melt and flow with the rest of society. You're the kind of person that sits in the corner with your wee drink and just watches everybody else." And that resonated with me. I'm like, I've felt that. And I think Bannock is the same way. He's somebody that's an observer. He's got trauma. He's exiled himself from the community. But even though that's that's a self-imposed thing, there's still that desire for companionship. That is a universal thing. And so I resonated with Bannock a lot. Um, he was probably the easiest character to write for in this. Um, the hardest was honestly Herneas because Herneas is a stoically charismatic individual almost like he inspires he he is a natural born leader um he's very intelligent but he's also fiercely independent which are all wonderful traits and all really cool things to do and making a character that embodies all of those things without making him seem like he's you know superman and invincible and relatable at the same but and still making him relatable that was a challenge with herneas because he is such an intelligent tactical smart and capable character that conveying that without making him seem like he's op you know was probably the most difficult part and especially since he's one of the central point of view characters in the whole story so i think those two are my 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 two extremes between the two of them so yeah i mean all the characters are really they they stand on their own and i want to get back into that in a second but um there is something else i want to talk about is we did add in a last minute edition like literally right before i sent it to vince to lay out and that was about a certain ale that mantic came up with do you want to talk about that and any other easter eggs you might have seen it in oh yes there's lots of easter eggs that's one of my favorite things about writing these novels is that i get to put easter eggs and nods to various players in the community and various real world things and it was funny because ronnie in his you know eclectic way decided to purchase a a, a a type of rum and i don't know if he 
purchased the brand or if he just purchased a certain limited run or whatever the case may be is I, I, I don't understand the full details, but he ran this contest for the community where he had purchased this rum and he's like, hey, let's name this rum and it's going to be an in-world brand of rum that we're going to have. And it just so happened that he reached out to me after we had just finished the final edits of the book and it was getting ready to go for layout and all that stuff. And he's like, hey, we've got the name of this rum and he's he's now announced that it's called Goblin Blaster, which is based off a unit in the actual game, which is a fun little detail. And he's like, can you put a reference to this rum in the story? And I was like, yeah, I think I can manage that. So we have it so that when, because it's on the back cover of the thing, so I don't know if this is super spoilerific, but after they retake Kulgen, which is what the opening part of the story is about, um, it talks about how um, they found a stockpile of this Goblin Blaster rum, and that is Sveri's favorite drink. And he and he has it, and he has it in this um, in future scenes that have yet to be make an appearance. But he. Um, Spoiler, um, but he, um, <laughs> but he, it becomes Sveri's favorite drink, and it's referenced how it's you know this famous drink that's renowned throughout the world, and it's super expensive. One soldier could spend his whole monthly wages and and not be able to afford a bottle, kind of thing. So it's this really nice thing, and Sveri shares that with his with the surviving troops that helped him retake Kuhl uh, again. So there's a big celebration with it and all that kind of stuff, which is kind of a fun detail because you can actually buy or win. I don't know if you can buy, but you can actually win a bottle of goblin blaster in our world and and if you are someone who partakes you can imbibe the same stuff that Sveri drinks so it's kind of a fun thing any other like character easter eggs or community easter eggs you seated in absolutely at the clans you'll meet a character that is from a guy um who i haven't met in person but i've talked a lot with on facebook and and spoken with him and swapped messages with him about his characters and it's mendeleev and minerva yes 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 yeah, and they are from, and he's a he's a big old dwarf player, and he's created Fool's Hold because his whole basis for his ar- for his army is that they mine pyrite because they use it in a process to create blasting powder um, with pyrite, which is Fool's Gold, right? And so it's a play on words, and it's very clever. And he himself is a geologist, so he has this super in depth um, understanding of how that could actually work in real life. And he he's also a medieval enthusiast. So he knows how like medieval alchemy kind of works. And it was such an inspiring story in his characters that while they only make a cameo appearance in the pride of a king, they make a reappearance in the upcoming sequel and they are actually a, an integral part of the plot. Now they're still going to be side characters. They're not going to be central characters because I don't want to steal that much from a player and kind of take over their characters from them, but they do play an important role in the story and they have more interaction so that's kind of fun that's fantastic as soon as you brought up the clansville i'm like i know exactly what two characters you're talking about like i I saw the scene clearly in my head because it actually it stuck out to me when we when i was reading it i was like he's putting emphasis on these characters i think there's a reason behind it so it stood out in my memory as like a scene that i that was clear so good job with that well thank you um Mark, do you want to ask some of the? Do you want to, we kind of touched on some of the questions we had about the characters, but do you want to skim through that list and ask whatever? So doubling back to the characters, I think what one of the things which makes this novel unique and different from Drowned Secrets and and a, a really different approach 
which you've done to a much greater extent here to something I did a tiny bit of in a previous one is taking some of Mantic's characters. So you've got Drowned Secrets where, I don't know, let's call it 90% creative freedom. I guess it's never 100% when you're using someone else's races and lore and stuff. But here, that, that percentage drops quite a lot, potentially, depending on how much Mantic want to hand over. Uh, I've had conversations with other... Uh, with other franchises where they say, whoa, this is, this is one of our heavy hitters, you need to be careful how you're doing this, or, meh, don't really care, do what you want. So h- how much creative freedom did you have with these named characters, and uh, how did you find that whole creative process in taking uh, a, a fictitious person who already has a few pages of backstory compared to um, creating something from scratch? So... Um, honestly, this was, they're both different parts of the same wheelhouse because with the creative freedom, there's a lot of weight with that because any problems with the character, that's on you kind of thing or anything along those lines. Whereas that's a different kind of weight with a character that's already established where you're taking, you know, one or two pages of lore and turning that into a fully formed persona, um, and if you do it wrong, you're going to have, you know, pitchforks and torches outside your house with people complaining about, you know, how that's not my Bannock or that's not my Herneus or my Sferi or whatever the case may be. Um, but the fun thing about that is, is I always love games of what if or extrapolation. I love that. That's one of my favorite things to do about characters is I love things like fan theories where people will go into them. And even though it isn't canonical, they look at the details of movies or books or stories or whatever the case may be. And they make inferences and connections that you go, Oh, that's a cool idea. I never thought of it that way. And I love doing that with these characters. And I loved doing that and taking and being like, well, we don't really get a sense of Bannock's character in the lore other than a few like surface area hints, right? We know that he's a little, he's an outlier because he's got this, um, this earth elemental that he hangs out with and earth elementals are supposed to dissipate after a couple of days. So I saw it, I thought, well, that's kind of weird. Why would he have that? And it's like, Oh, well, he's, he's an outlier of the community. He's self banished, but he still probably wants some kind of connection and he finds that in Kragoth, his his earth elemental. And because of that, he's found ways to keep Kragoth there. Um, and that freaks the community out. They, they feel like it's weird. It's unnatural that he would want to do this. And it's unnatural that Kragoth would be willing to stay in this in this corporeal form because that goes against what elemental spirits are. And so building these different ideas just off of like a couple of pages of notes and and articles on them where we haven't really seen Bannock interact with other people on anything other than a battle level kind of thing has been a lot of fun um whereas with Ashal I had to I had to figure out well why is she motivated what's she doing how come she's not with the naiads uh why does she behave the way that she does? And that was completely from scratch. Whereas having these few prompts, if you will, um, was a lot of fun. Plus then you started to see parallels like Herneus and Bannock both have similar situations in which they screwed up big time in their past. 
and they both interpreted different ways. Bannock went into self-exile. Hernaeus looked at that and went, I messed up. I need to fix this. And it made him a better leader as a result and led him to where he is now. And so it was kind of an interesting mirror to look at how these two characters have similar instances in their background, but how can they take it and still be uniquely distinct and not just be, you know, happy Bannock and sad Bannock as a result or whatever the case may be. So I, I enjoyed that aspect that it was like a puzzle and I liked picking it apart and putting it back together and looking at it from different angles. So I kind of really enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, just like I enjoyed the whole idea of building the characters from the ground up and having complete 100% say in what they say or how they act and what they are. So there's advantages to both. I feel like there's more impetus to get it right, though, when you're playing with someone else's IP and someone else's character that they've created. Yours are more major characters. I borrowed a couple of Mantic ones for a a novel I did a little while back called Hero Falling, where there was two characters uh, from... Oh, how have I forgotten the name of that dungeon crawler? That, that dungeon only did Saga. It. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I, I borrowed a couple of really minor Dungeon Saga characters, and I was kind of like, I, I had that thought to start with, uh, whereas I, I compare it to an Infinity novel I'm writing now, where I've, I've almost kind of borrowed Han Solo. It's like, wow, I've got to get this right. This is a major, major character. Um, but with the uh, with Hero Falling, it's like, can anyone in the entire player base name these two minor characters that are hidden away in an expansion set for Dungeon Saga? Whereas what you've got are some uh, some proper, you know, heavy hitters, which people use at tournaments and people care about. And, and yeah, that's I think there's more of a, without putting pressure on, there's, there's more of a weight of responsibility on that when they're, they're more kind of uh, loved and used in the community, I guess. Absolutely. And I would even go so far as to say that you have a responsibility to those players um, while still maintaining that artistic integrity of creating something that's real and not just fan service, because just fan service might make a few people happy, but it's not a compelling story. Whereas making a compelling story might upset some fans. So finding that balance in between those two things and I'm fully prepared to take some some heat because I guarantee that some people are going to be like, that's not at all how I pictured Garrick or Bannock or Sverry or any of those guys to behave or think or act. I feel like I've, I've tried, at the very least, I can always say that I have given my full effort into creating an authentic and reliable creation from what Mantic has given us from the start. And I've tried to be faithful to that adaptation and create something that players will go no that actually makes a lot of sense and i i kind of like this character so i think of the characters you did the one which leapt out to me um reading through bannock straight away and i was trying to put my finger on what it was and i think it was the relatability of the feeling of guilt uh which came out of these these visions because i i really like the supernatural something something between supernatural and psychological because it's just like okay it, it is when you first find out about the visions in this opening chapter is it ghosts or is this trauma which is uh, playing out on a on a more psychological level and you've got to kind of find out as you go into it but either way it's something coming from guilt uh, which we can all relate to but those visions what was the what was the creative process in developing those for Bannock? 
so I started out being like, well, there's a there's a mystery that Bannock there has to be something for Bannock to do if all he's doing is sitting around going to meetings and pleading for the the free dwarves to get help from the Imperials, then that's gonna be a that that's so boring, obviously, right? There's no there's no reason to write a story about that because there's that you know, we live that every day. We sit in meetings every day that we go to work almost and so that's so boring so i had to come up with an idea of well where's that going to be um another fun thing that i did is i started out the novel and as i was starting i was like man i really want to add some 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 background and i want to develop the story i want to give some flavor to the dwarves and so i started creating these intro quotes the these faux quotes that are from prominent people within the universe and it's a it's a thing that's been done frank herbert did it with dune at the beginning of every chapter he had a quote from princess irulan or something along those lines that would explain kind of what was going to happen in that chapter or relate to something within that chapter and the first quote that i came up with is actually the first one for the first chapter um and it's a quote from queen rosin which i was like a rosin Need to, yeah, Rosen, I think, is how it's pronounced. Um, because, again, Welsh. Um, and I, I wrote this quote, and I'm like, man, I really like this, but why, why is this here? Where is this coming from? And I was like, you know what? We never learn anything about Gallic, and where he's not a character that's actually present for any of the story, we never really see Gallic. Um how can we have him still be present in it? And I'm like, well, why let's have Bannock investigate this. And so I created the character of queen Rawson. And then I was like, you know what? Let's have her be dead. Why not? Let's, she has this memoir that she's published. She was well liked, but ultimately not an important character or not an important person as far as the, um, the kingdom goes. And then I started putting that onto Bannock as like, she was talking to him and in urging him on to investigate things about the kingdom and about her life and about Golok and all of this stuff and and kind of the impetus for, you know, thing not everything's okay at home, right? Like, not everything's what it seems. Um, and as I developed this, I developed, like, well, what, what is this spiritual? Is this, is this supernatural? Or is this PTSD? Which Bannock obviously has. And so I eventually developed that this was a type of coping mechanism that he had to, to avoid his trauma. Um, and that's revealed at, towards the end of the story how that how Rawson's specter is this coping mechanism that he has for the ghosts that are floating around him. And as we started doing that, Brandon came back. He's like, you know, it's a really cool idea, but it just kind of seems to come out of nowhere. Where does it come from? I was like, you know what? You're right. We need to add some more stuff to it. And then I was like, you know what? I talk to myself all the time. Um, and that is a type of coping mechanism. It's a, it's a, it's an actual psychological way of processing information that some people have, which is, which is why some people talk to themselves is because when you explain some things, you understand it better. And so you, I do that to myself. I explain to myself what's going on. And I'm like, well, what if Bannock had that same tick, that same mental processing capability? And so I inserted a bit of myself in Bannock there. And I'm like, well, yeah, Bannock's talking to the people that 
he feels that he let die or that he knew and that have passed on or that he's grieving for or any of those kind of things. And he talks to them to process his emotions, to process his mental state, to think about how this is all working. Um, and they take the form of ghosts. And so he actually imagines them being there. Now, whether they're actually there, whether these are actually the specters, that's a good question. I leave that purposefully ambiguous because I think that that's an interesting aspect to consider. In a world where angels and demons actually exist and ghosts are actually on the battlefield and fight, are there actual ghosts that will come and visit people from beyond the grave and talk to them as if they were old friends? I mean, that's an interesting thought to have. And so I leave that kind of purposefully ambiguous, but with a with clues as to either way it could go. So, yeah. Um, one last thing I want to talk about before we wrap up is more of a more of an anecdote than anything. Uh, so the the I'm hoping that the secret of Gallic being an abyssal and having you know basically sold his soul to unite the dwarves will be a nice little uh, a nice little payoff effect for our readers and people who especially like playing kings of war but there was a moment when you and i kind of panicked and we're like oh how did this come out i was on mantic universe podcast and chris thomas brought up something he just he threw away a quick line about Gallic being an abyssal so quickly that i skimmed over it on purpose because i'm like i don't think that's common knowledge I don't know how he found that out that i just kind of let it be <laughs> and you messaged me and you're just like um how did he know that? And I'm like, I don't know. We're just going to let it be and pretend it didn't happen. And I don't think we've heard about it again since. And I don't think anybody has mentioned that. But it was one of those things that I was just like, you know, with everything we work on, we, we're under an NDA. And, uh, you know, all, of, all the authors have signed NDAs at some point saying, like, you know, we're not going to talk, we're not going to talk about the big big details to the general public because we don't want to spoil anything, especially like what the future plans with Nantic are. So it was one of those things that I, I think that, you know, we did a great job of keeping that under wraps. I've, I tried teasing that there were going to be big reveals, but that, that was the first time it actually came out that somebody was like, yeah, so Galax and Abyssal. And I'm like, excuse me, what? <laughs> so, yeah, I remember that. Um, and it was very relieving when um, Mike, who does all of our reviews, Mike, oh, what's his last name? Is his screen name? Oh, Mike, Mike Carter. Mike, Mike Carter. Carter. Thank you. Oh. Yeah, I could not remember his last name there for a second, but he he messaged us and he started talking about it and he's like, holy crap, Golox and Abyssal. I was like, whew, okay. It, yes. is, it is still a review, a reveal to somebody, especially somebody like Michael Carter who knows the lore and is involved in the, in the community and knows people in it that he didn't know that. I was like, okay, it isn't common knowledge. We're okay. That was a, that was a big relief. And, you know, Chris might have just been throwing it off as an offhanded comment as a joke. And I, and maybe he was kind of surprised when I blushed over it, too. I don't know. I didn't talk to him about it because I didn't really want to make it a big thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be like, how did you find out about that? And, and I also didn't want to be like, you know, I was just like, oh, I'll just leave it alone. So this is the first I've talked about that since. So hopefully, you know, it was good to hear Mike was surprised. So, yeah, all's well that ends well with that one. Right. No, it was good. And. Honestly, if you read the lore, it makes 100% sense that it works out that way because Gullock, he's kind of an ass. And that's actually something that's really interesting because we talk about how it's weird that 
we did a dwarf spy novel, but it makes sense because the dwarves are a very blunt and straightforward race. That's what it's the lore says about them. But they have a king who rose to the throne through subterfuge, through lying and bribing and manipulating and marrying his way to the top. Um, and it's like, well, no wonder Gullock was successful because the dwarves were totally taken aback by this. They had no idea how to react to it because they'd never encountered that before. And any time that they had it, usually it ended up with an abyssal being formed. And so, hey, you know, foreshadowing, maybe Gullock isn't as uh, good of a king as he should be, right? Depending on your values. Ben... We've had two really fantastic episodes talking about this novel. I- I'm really excited to hear what people think. I've been building this up as much as I possibly can. Um, and I really want to get you on more to talk about Pride of a King. And, you know, we can talk about some other stuff. And, Absolutely. Uh, we'll talk about Drowned Secrets at some point. Talk, talk about the sequel to this because it's the first in a trilogy. But I-, I think we've done a lot of talking and uh, we'll have to mm-hmm. wrap this up here and definitely talk about more in the future. But before we go, Mark and I just have some... We're trying this out. We've got some quick fire questions we want to ask. I've, I've read this off. I was, I was on a I, um, Bolt Action, uh, I, a, another franchise I write for. I was on a podcast with some Bolt Action guys, and they got this as a, a standard thing. So I thought, I'm going to plagiarize that horribly because it, <laughs> it, was, it was a really good, fun thing. Um, so I'm going to launch Best that in a second. Flattery. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That's all of my writing is. Um, so, um, yeah, the last thing I was just going to end on, on that one is, um, this has been fantastic to have a chat. I know we've kind of worked together on and off with, with various projects over the years, but I've learned an awful lot about your skill set from this, which is going to backfire horribly on you now that I know that. So now I know about your linguistics background and, and how much detail you go into with, um, the, the, the cultural side, uh, of this stuff anyway. Uh, there's an email probably coming your way in a few minutes about uh, Basile and sea shanties. So uh, best of luck with <laughs> awesome. unpicking that one. Um, right, quick fire questions. Ten quick fire questions. Uh, some, are, some are part A and part B. Uh, so in either, basically you've got one sentence or less to answer each one with no real justification as to your answer. And off we go. Star Wars or Star Trek? You shall be judged. <laughs> Yeah, Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. Okay, you chose Star Wars. So in that case, Han, Luke, or Leia? Luke. Ah, the correct answer was Wedge Antilles. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, pineapple on pizza, yes or no? No, absolutely not. That was the correct answer. Um, no, okay. false, false. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um... Aliens have invaded, and the only way for you to save Earth is to turn your back on uh, fantasy wargaming and go to the historic wargaming circuit. What historic uh, era are you going to play in? Oh, that's hard. Uh, f- immediately off the bat, feudal Japan. It's an old question, but I'm asking anyway. If you could talk to anyone, alive or dead, who would it be? <sighs> Terry Pratchett. Okay, let's let, let's throw in an awkward hand grenade. You've got to pick one. <laughs> Tournament play or non-competitive friendly play? Ah, that one's hard. I I really enjoy tournament play. So I, but I also, but I love running campaigns. If I had to choose between the two and I couldn't have any of the others, it would probably be non-competitive because I'm not the most competitive player. <laughs> nice. 
Um, if you could live in any universe, any video game, movie, fiction, whatever, nonfiction, whatever you want to do, if you could live anywhere, where? If I had to live there, Animal Crossing. Nice. Good choice. <laughs> Simple one word answer. Well-painted minis. Are they lucky or unlucky? The first time they meet the battlefield, they're always gonna, they're always gonna fail for you, and then after that, they always do well. Nice. All right, what's something on your bucket list? Visit Europe. Nice. Okay, last one from me then. We've established you are a Kings of War man. What's your second go-to gaming system after Kings of War? Big PS4, Final Fantasy fan. That's my main one. Yes. I'd probably say. Oh my god! Between the three of us, we can have an episode on Final Fantasy. Then. That's right. Don't get don't get me started on that. Don't give me ideas because I'm a huge Final Fantasy uh, stand. So that that could open some really crazy doors. Anyway, um, what's one thing that can make your day instantly better? Good food. Nice. All right. And before we end the show, Ben, uh, do you want to plug your tournament? Just keep in mind this episode is going to air once the book launches so i i don't know if that that might be after the tournament it, but you can still pitch it yeah. anyway <laughs> it is after the tournament so this is going to come out after the tournament it's come my tournament's coming up in almost literally a month in october 13th friday the 13th so it'll, you know good good background there but it's refugees of the old world the idea behind it is i live in the butt crack of nowhere i am literally four hours from the nearest major airport driving on a freeway going 85 miles an hour kind of thing. Um, I literally live in the middle of potato land. Um, and so there isn't a whole lot of stuff around us, like events and stuff like that. And I travel all over the country. I go to events all over the country, made friends all over the United States and through this hobby and 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 other countries like mark for example and it's been a great experience i think this has been one of the most enriching communities i've ever been in because of that um and as i go to these tournaments i pick up little tidbits of things that i think are really cool like special characters that are just for the tournament and alternate objectives and special scenarios and i bring and scoring systems and i bring that back and i create my tournament so that my local players um, can enjoy some of these things and get excited about that and hopefully inspire a few of them to travel around and get more involved in the community as well. And it's called Refugees of the Old World because it was formed based off the impetus of um, Games Workshop um, detonating the old world and leaving us without a game to play with all of these miniatures that we had. And that's when our group found Kings of War. We're one of the classic Sundering origin stories and so i was like well i'm gonna make my tournament based off that we're called refugees of the old world because that's what kings of war was for us was a refuge and so that's where that title came from um that's that's been my main project for the past i i do all the stuff for it like i paint up all the trophies for it those are all done by me i i mean i purchase them through 3d printers or other companies that i i like the miniature but i will paint up the the trophies we give out except for the main one which is a sword that i have engraved so everybody can see your accomplishments and just all sorts of fun things like that there's it's just a good time we we hang out all all weekend long i get to see people that i only get to see a couple times a year and it's just a blast i enjoy it immensely and i would say to anybody who's considering playing kings of war please go to a tournament i know 
the whole purpose is not to win the tournament. I, I go to tournaments and at best I end up in the middle of the pack. Like the best I've ever gotten is third place overall. And that's, that was on an extremely lucky weekend and just really doing well that weekend. And I love going to tournaments. They're so much fun. You get to meet some of the coolest people. The Kings of War community is honestly one of the best hobby communities and i've been in everything from historical reenactment groups stage and theater groups gaming groups video game groups online everything i've been in a ton of groups and i will say without a doubt that kings of war the community the reason that i have so much passion for the lore and for the game itself is because the community is phenomenal as far as one-on-one interactions so yeah, it's it's great. So if you are even slightly interested in Kings of War, I urge you, get a hold of uh, somebody that's running a tournament that's near you. You don't have to drive the five, six, seven, eight hours that I do to get to one. But if you can find one within a short distance from you, get a hold of the TO and say, hey, I'm really looking to get into Kings of War. Could you maybe help me figure out how to get involved and how to get to your tournament and have somebody show me the ropes once I got there. And I guarantee you that that TO, especially if it's one of the bigger tournaments, which is an interesting thing, that TO is going to sit down with you and be like, yeah, here's the guy that you're going to talk to. He'll find you. He's going to show you around. He's going to make sure that you go to all the good spots to eat in the town that you're going to, and you're going to have a good time. So I can't plug the Kings of War community enough. Nice. So, yeah, if you are interested in Pride of a King, it is available through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, uh, WHPSupplyRoom.com, all major book retailers. Um, Ben's other novel is Drowned Secrets, which uh, is about naiads, which is uh, the underwater force for um, merpeople, more or less, for uh, Kings of War. Um, and Ben has a short story coming out in a horror anthology this a year, too, with some other big names like uh, Graham McNeil and C.L. Werner. So definitely look forward to that as well. Yeah. Ben, where can, any, yeah. Oh, sorry. When, where can anybody get in touch with you if they're interested in the tournament or learning more about Kings of War in general? Uh, you can get a hold of me on Facebook. Um, I'm on all, I'm on, I'm usually pretty active on the fanatics page or any of the other group pages. There's the counter charge discord server. Um, I'm known as falling sledge is my screen name on that. So I have a picture of a, of an oriental dragon as my screen picture. You can get a hold of me there. Um, also you can email me at refugees of the old world at gmail.com. Now keep in mind, there's an extra E after old and world, because, you know, I've tried to be fancy with that and have regretted it ever since I have put the thing on a website and an email and all that stuff, because people always forget that. So it's refugees of the old world, old with an extra E world with an extra E at the end of those at gmail.com. And I'm happy to answer any questions that anybody might have about anything with it within the kings of war universe all right but anyway so that has been uh, our first author interview in two pieces we were really excited about this we had a lot of fun uh thanks for listening and we will catch you guys in the next one i'm brandon i'm mark i'm ben 